Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Jesus, um, forgive us when we sing songs like nothing else, where we say, I want you and nothing else. And we're not exactly sure what that means. Forgive us when, uh, when we examine your story and our hearts don't melt within us. Forgive us, Lord. We don't understand. I thank you for this community. I thank you for the ways you're at work in these people, building us, growing us, establishing us as a family, where, where everyone is, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey, no matter what they may think about you, there's room for them. You are welcoming them into this space. Would those not just be words for us? Would we live into them? But Lord, as we consider your story today, as we turn our attention to something that you did that was absolutely astonishing, would you open all our hearts? Would you, would you melt them? Would our pride give way? Would our, would our doubt and cynicism give way so that we could actually see you for who you are and praise you how you deserve? Thank you, Lord, that you're so patient with us. It's in your name, amen. All right. Well, if you've been with us, we've been in this series called Groundswell, Groundswell. Uh, and and the, the, the basic premise, the idea of Groundswell is we've been looking at What would it look like, what does it look like to encounter the presence of God? To allow God's voice, God's presence, God's love to invade you, to speak to you, to be closer to you than your own breath, than your own consciousness. And we've been looking at John's gospel, the fourth gospel, uh, examining various stories, uh, various anecdotes, various teachings, and asking just that, what would God want to say to you today through this story? And Jay already said it, but I just want to reiterate it, guys. None of you are here on accident today. Would you believe that? That you're here because God has something. It's not, you're not just going through the motions. God has something for you today, specifically for you. So would you be open to what that might be? At any point during the service or when we respond and worship later, we have a prayer room out the doors to the right with people there who would love to pray with you. So if you feel so prompted, please make it available. And our text today is coming from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It might be a memorable one to certain people in the room. Um, It's getting closer toward the end of Jesus's ministry, and he is currently uh, sharing a meal with his best friends. This is what we read. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. 
So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't know what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And the bell struck two. <laughs> foot washing, foot washing. On first glance, this is a really beautiful story, isn't it? Very tidy, very neat, very nice. It sort of demonstrates, you see a lot of leadership books uh, talk about this story as a model of servant leadership that the leader becomes a servant to those who he loves and he leads. Uh, and and uh, my, my friend Nathan and I, we would always joke about mantras that our families had, especially around Thanksgiving. So maybe you had this too. At Thanksgiving, we'd have family over, we'd have friends over, and when it would be time to go through the lines for food, uh, we'd have this mantra, we'd say, hey, family eats last, family eats last. Maybe you had it, right? And so go, okay, well, I don't go first through the line. This is my act, my symbolic act of washing your feet. I'm gonna hold back, and then when I go through, there will be no more macaroni or honey-baked ham, which is a real sacrifice, guys, all right? It's a real sacrifice. But maybe that's the way we view this story, right? It's super neat, it's sweet. Ah, oh, Jesus, you're such a servant. He's about to die, so he's leaving this really nice gesture, modeling what it means to be part of his posse. We serve, we're not the ones who are served. And that's fine, except that there's one moment in this story that totally evades that interpretation. Right in the middle of the scene, <laughs> Jesus comes to Peter and they have this really interesting exchange. Peter says, Lord, you're, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And he says, hey, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. And then Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet which sounds pretty strong. It's even stronger in the Greek language, the original language it was written in. It actually has this double negative. So ou and me are two Greek words that both mean no. If you put them together, you have more like heck no, all right? If you catch my drift. So Peter's like, Jesus is like, I'm gonna wash your feet. Peter goes, absolutely not. You will not wash my feet, never, 
ever. And then at the very end of that sentence, he had this Greek uh, phrase that says, into the ages, which basically means eternally. So, so Peter's like, you're not gonna touch my feet. Absolutely not over my dead body. Jesus, you will never touch my feet. To which Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Now that evades the very nice interpretation. I guess Peter really wants Jesus to have the macaroni. You will have the macaroni. You will go first. You will do it. Take two slices of ham. All right, it's not as neat anymore. There's something else happening. What's wrong with washing feet? What's wrong with it? When you do a little research, you realize that in the ancient context, feet are considered the dirtiest, most shameful part of a person. And you see this both in the Bible and outside the Bible and other ancient cultures. So if you remember, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, what's the first thing he says to him? Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. You constantly see in the biblical story uh, when, when someone brings in a traveler, it was common courtesy, it was expected that you provide them with a basin of water so they could wash their feet after the long journey. Or if you were really rich, you not only provided a basin of water, you provided a servant. And the servant washed uh, the, the person's feet. In Buddhism, feet are considered the most unclean part of the body. So if you point one's feet toward an altar or toward a teacher, that is considered disrespectful. Even in the current day, in the Middle East, to throw a shoe at someone is a sign of grave disrespect. Y'all remember Shoegate when President Bush got the shoe thrown at him by the reporter? Yeah, and we're like, whoa, who throws a shoe? Well, in the Middle East, that was like a really, really big deal. To throw a shoe at someone is like the gravest disrespect because the shoe represents the dirtiest part of you. When Saddam Hussein's statue was toppled, you saw a video of people, of Iraqis, uh, swarming it and stamping on it and slapping it with their shoes. All four of the major religions, with the exception of Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, all have some form of ritual washing of hands and feet before meals, before prayers, before worship that uh, symbolically purifies the person so as to enter into God's presence. So feet are considered the dirtiest, most shameful part of a person. But it's not just that. Feet also in the ancient world were associated with the most vulnerable parts of a person, with sexuality. So there's a story about a woman named Ruth in the Bible. And it's a long story, all right, long story. But basically his mother, her mother-in-law, Naomi, is trying to play matchmaker and set her up with this guy, Boaz. And at one point um, in the exchange, he, she tells, Naomi tells Ruth, go to Boaz while he's asleep and quote unquote, uncover his feet. Scholars don't know what that means. It could mean just literally pulling the covers off his, his feet, signifying that, that, that Ruth is open uh, and available. It could mean a euphemism. Uh, to like uncover Boaz entirely and say, hey, that's a sign that I'm available. Uh, the earliest known brothel sign, this is an interesting, this is a fun fact, pull out your parties. Earliest known brothel sign comes from 2,500 years ago in an engraving in Ephesus. It has a picture of a foot pointing to a public triangle. Yeah, I'll let you hold on to that one. The Mesopotamian word for both knee 
and the male member is the exact same word. Exact same word. And in various ancient um, marriage ceremonies, feet and sandals are, are associated. So in the Egyptian marriage ceremony, the bride and groom exchange a sandal. In the ancient Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, the groom would lightly tap his foot on the bride's head to signify his authority over her, to which all the modern hairdressers gasp. But the, the idea is the same, okay? Whether feet are considered the dirtiest, most shameful parts of a, of a human or the most vulnerable and intimate parts of a human, the idea is the same. Washing feet, feet washing preceded intimacy. And the washing, the, the cleaning away of the defilement of feet, the dirt of feet was necessary before you could enter into communion with God, with, with another. It was the barrier that did not allow someone to enter into intimate places. So washing feet in this ancient context, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it is not an act of service between friends. It's not like, hey, let me wash your feet and let's get up and go watch the game together. No, there's no going back. You're done. Socially, you have run your name through the mud. You cannot come back from this. I think often when we look at this story, we, we imagine it's like servant leadership. So the leader serves, but everyone still gives the leader, him or her, the authority, the respect they deserve. We just say, oh, wow, they let me get the macaroni first. That's incredible. That's not what's going on at all. Or, or you imagine it's like, being, like I'm a pastor, right? Um, I, I talk to many of you. Many of you let me in, and I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled. You let me into the dirt of your life. You let me into your feet. But you don't think in your minds like, oh, I'm letting him in, uh, but now he's below me, right? If anything, maybe you think, oh, this is a superior because he's a representative of God. That's not what's going on here at all. When you wash someone's feet, you are transferring your dirt onto someone else. The foot washer is beneath you, below you. They take your shame, they take your dirt, they take your vulnerability, and in return, you get clean feet. You get to enter the meal, you get to enter the temple, you get to go to the feast, and they don't anymore because they have been defiled by you. It's transference. It's absorption. There's no going back from this. You would never, in the ancient world, if I washed your feet as a pastor, you would never look at me the same way again. You will have lost respect for me. You will have lost, I would have lost authority in your eyes. There's no going back. Now, if that's the case, then this makes a little more sense now, doesn't it, why Peter is vehement that Jesus will never wash his feet unto the ages. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the teacher. He's the Lord. He's the one who the power comes through. He's the one healing people, casting out demons, performing miracles. The power is in him. He's the main event. And the disciples, they imagine we're on this noble campaign to restore the fortunes of Israel. And we're each going to get a banging title and a plot of land out of this. This is going to be great. All right. 
So for Jesus to wash his disciples' feet is to symbolically totally destroy his name. It is to run his name through the mud. It is to absolutely destroy his political campaign. There is no coming back for this. None. It's done. For Jesus the king to say, my kingship will be inaugurated by becoming the dirt rag of the people. Hey, I'm going to restore you to God. I'm going to save the world, but first I'm going to take a bath in the sewer system. And I might stay there a bit. There's nothing noble in this. There's no silver lining. You would have been utterly confused, heartbroken, angry, frustrated, just like Peter. He's basically saying, Jesus, you're destroying everything we've built. You're destroying everything I thought we were working for. You're about to enter into Jerusalem and claim the power. What are you doing? You don't understand what I'm doing yet, Peter. Not yet, but you will. You will. Peter tries once more. Well, not just my feet then. Also my hand and my head. Give me a whole bath and that will restore the balance that you're the superior and I'm the inferior. And Jesus like, no, 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 no. I'm not the king who leads you in. I'm the king who takes your place so you can go in. Peter, I'm not gonna lead you into the presence of God. I'm going to take your place so that you can go into the presence of God. Give me your depression. Give me your suicidal thoughts. Give me your rage. Give me that deep fear. Give me your abuse. Give me those abandonment issues. Give me that pride. Give it to me. Wash your dirty feet on me, and then you enter the banquet. I'm going to stay out here. I'm not going to be able to go in anymore. A couple years back, there was a photograph that really caused a stir. It was called Piss Christ. Maybe you remember it. It's from the artist Andres Serrano. And he took a photograph. Uh, he put a crucifix in a vial, and then he filled it with his own urine. He took a photograph of it. And the church was outraged. How dare you? How dare you create sacrilege of our holy icons? How dare you do this? I want to say that Serrano understood better than the church what Jesus came for. Friends, if I may step boldly, Jesus came to be pissed on by the world. That's precisely why he came. What do you think happened when he was on the cross? You think it was a noble death? No, no, no. God bled out, suffocated, gargled, and most likely defecated himself as he died for you and for me. Jesus came to take our dirt so that we could enter into God's presence. He can't anymore. He can't go. You don't understand what he's doing yet, but you will. If this is too harsh, go to a different church that says God has a great destiny for your life and your miracles right around the corner. I'm here to tell you the truth. And the truth is the destiny of Christ followers is to join the world in its crap. That's the truth. 
The destiny of Christ followers is to take the dirt, to absorb it so that the world might know how deeply God is for them. And you think about it, well, why? Why did he have to die? It's not arbitrary, guys. It's not some arbitrary form of punishment. Think about it like you would energy. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's just transferred. It's just moved around. So a simple example, you steal $100 from me, right? You take $100 from me. We have an issue. We have an imbalance. What are our options? Our options are I force you to pay me back $100. I decide some arbitrary um, like uh, value. I ascribe some value to it. Like you have to work for me for one year and that equates to $100 and then we're restored. Or I absorb the loss. But it has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. That's what's going on. You and I, we can pretend like that outburst isn't the real us. Like that season, that addiction isn't the real us. Like that moment of cowardice, that moment isn't the real us. That weakness isn't the real you, but it is. You did it. You said it. And that's the issue with the West. In the West, you and I, we are so unfortunate to have our needs pretty well met. They're pretty well taken care of. We wake up with no fear of war. We all have jobs, technologies that allow us to, uh, to you know, sneak by as well as possible. So it's pretty cushy over here. Therefore, none of us really have chances to see the real us. That was Peter's issue in this story. That was his issue. After this whole exchange about, unless I wash you, you have no part of me, they actually have another interaction at the same meal, just a couple verses later. And this is how it goes. Peter goes, hey, I'm about to be betrayed and I'm gonna be handed over to death. And, and I'm sorry, Jesus says that. And Peter goes, no, Lord, may that never be. And Jesus goes, look, here's the thing, where I'm going, you can't follow right now, but you will follow later. And Peter goes, Lord, why can I not follow? I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you. To which Jesus goes, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? You seem to have a pretty high estimation of yourself. Here's the thing. Not only will you not lay down your life for me, but before this night is over, you're gonna deny me three times. And he does. And what the story makes clear is that not, he denies him three times through the hands of a servant girl which in the ancient world, as we've talked about before, women already had no voice and children and slaves had no voice. They're all wrapped up in one person. She goes, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like calling down curses on Jesus. May it never be. See, Peter thought he was a pretty good guy. I left a lot to follow you, Jesus. I confessed you as the Messiah. I'd done some good things. He thought he was a pretty good guy. What he didn't realize was that at the core of his being was a disgusting coward who would betray his best friend to save his own skin. And let's not pass judgment because that's at the core of my being too. And that's at the core of yours. And Jesus, I just imagine there's in one scene, uh, one telling of that moment where, uh, where Peter 
realizes the third time that he's denied Jesus. He's called down curses and we're told the rooster crowed. And then it says Jesus turned and looked at him. And I imagine Jesus looking at Peter as Peter's starting to break, like he's just sobbing uncontrollably, realizing what's really inside him. And I imagine Jesus saying, give it to me. Pass it over, Peter. Wash your feet right here. Wash your feet right here. See, friends, you and I, we go through our days and we try and treat people cordially and show respect and tell the truth and be generous enough. We try to treat people as well as we can. But the truth is that at the core of us that comes out in sudden moments is a selfish, cowardly, prideful, power-hungry, approval-obsessed, deceitful person. It's kind of like when you get those alerts, like I got this alert this morning on the way up to the church, uh, the screen time alerts, you know what I mean? And you're like, the, the alert pops up and you go, whoa, I spent 26 hours on my phone this week. And I was like, I, I couldn't have spent more than, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes on Instagram, 30 minutes, maybe. And then you get it and you're like, oh, 19 hours on Instagram. Cool, all right. That's kind of what it's like. You and I go through our days and we think, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. And then you have these sudden moments like what Jesus had to Peter, where, where Peter is suddenly in a moment of crisis and danger to reveal what's actually inside of him. And what's inside of him is a coward. And remember, guys, I'm a pastor. I know your crap. <laughs> Here's the thing. None of you are unique in it. You're all the same. We're all the same. Here's another secret. I am just like Peter. I'm not unique. One of the best gifts of marriage one of the best gifts of marriage is that it revealed to me how terrible of a human being I am. <laughs> Seriously. I don't know if you ever heard that Mark Twain quote where he goes, uh, talking about his parents. He goes, my parents were such idiots before I went to college. It's amazing how much they can learn in four years. <laughs> Same thing. It's like, man, I was a pretty good guy before I got married. And then my wife in one month just made me this terrible person. It's a mirror. I had a chance to see in sudden moments what's really inside of me. I saw the little petty ways I try and get my way with Anna. How I do not look after her best interests. How I deceive her to avoid painful topics. How I give intimacy to her, but only with conditions. The core of me has been revealed as this selfish, cowardly, prideful, petty, power-hungry child. And maybe you have something happen. Maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's something else. But here's how it'll work in my house. Anna and I will be in a disagreement. And somehow, I'll say something very unkind to her. And I'm shocked I said that. I didn't know I could be that angry that I would say something like that. I'm a pastor. Why would I say that? I love her. Why would I say that? She's hurt. I'm hurt. I feel like crap. My feet are dirty. I feel ashamed and I run and hide. And in a moment, always unpredictable, God's presence will show up. And I'll say, my child, come be with me. And I'll say, no, God, I can't. Did you see what I did, how I treated Anna? No, 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 I can't. And his presence will say, I saw it. Give it to my son. Hand it over to him. It's for this reason he came. To enter into those moments when you most want to run and hide. 
the moments you feel the dirtiest, the moments where you see just how dirty you are, those are the moments my son came for. Because that's who you really are. Give it to him. Let him wash your feet and take the dirt. He can handle it. He's strong enough. And in its stead, I will give you my love and my joy. Friends, which is why the gospel is unlike any other story on the market. There's nothing like it. Because in this story, God does not say, first wash yourself and then come into my presence. Nor does God say, hey, let me come to you and I'll walk hand in hand with you into the presence of God. No, no, no. In the gospel, God says, I have come to the real you, the dirty, shameful you, and I've come to take it, to absorb it, because I'm strong enough to handle it, so that you can come and be with me forever and never be cut off from my love. I'm strong enough to absorb the dirt, the shame, the defilement, and not be conquered by it, says Jesus. I've come to take it so that you can enter in. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God who has come to take the crap of your heart because he's strong enough to handle it so that you can be clean with God forever. And here's the thing. <laughs> when you are the dirtiest, when you, when you have those moments like I had with Anna, when I suddenly am revealed for who I really am, when Peter is revealed what's really inside of him, he didn't think that was inside of him, but it is when it's revealed what's really inside of me and I feel the dirtiest, when it's revealed in a moment through your unkind word or through your trauma or a, a bout of violence or rage or deep fear or deep self-preservation or you act one way at work and another way at church, whatever it is, and in that moment is when you want to run and hide the most. That's when you must, I beg you, in that moment where you feel most ashamed thrust that shame into the air and say, Jesus, take it, take it. And his response would be, that's exactly why I came. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm with you in this. I will take it. And then instead, I will give you my friendship, my love, because I'm strong enough to handle it. It's in those moments, guys, when you see just how amazing the story of Jesus is and why you understand that there's nothing like it and why it has swept the world in every country and every continent. There's no God like this one. Not a God who says, I'm gonna come and you know, stand at a distance from your pain. A God who says, give me your pain. I'm gonna become the dirt rag of the people. I'm gonna absorb it so that you can go into the presence of God. I recently saw a play about alcoholism, which someone in our community uh, was in it. And I don't know if he's in this room right now, but he was incredible. And in the play about alcoholism, maybe uh, some of you who have experiences with addiction or friends or family with experiences, you know how it works. It took the guy a long time to realize how deep the addiction was inside of him. He constantly, he's had many trips to rehab that never took, right? They never took. And every time he would rationalize it, he would say, well, I need alcohol for my job or, or alcohol is what makes me good at this or it opens me up a little bit or, or I'm not that much of a drunk. Like those are real drunks. I'm not that much of a drunk. He would rationalize it and say, that's not the real me. It's a character flaw. But deep down, I'm really in control of myself. That's what he was saying. That's not the real me. I'm really in deep down. 
I'm really in control. In the same way that Peter would say, maybe I have a moment of cowardice, but that's not the real me. Deep down, I'm not a coward. I actually love you. And then one day in this, in this, in this play, finally, he gets to the root of himself. And he hits rock bottom in this really powerful scene. And he goes to rehab. And there's a couple weeks that he's feeling good. He's feeling fine. It's, it's taking. And he thinks, oh, I'm, I'm in control. And then one night out of nowhere, it just comes roaring out of him. He begins to sweat profusely. He's rationalizing everything. He's looking up the closest liquor stores and Applebee's and what if I can just have, I've done so good. I can just have one drink, right? He's rationalizing it all, sweating profusely. And the instructors had been telling him throughout, you have to pray. You have to find your higher power and pray. Especially in those moments when, when you feel most out of control, that's when you pray. And he had been resistant to it, but it's overtaking him. He's fighting so hard to remain in control and he realizes that it's overtaking him. And so he goes, finally, in one moment, after sweating and, and breathing heavily and so afraid, I pray. And then 30 seconds go by and I haven't thought of a drink and I keep praying. And then a minute goes by and then two and I pray and I pray and I wake up the next morning not having done anything. See, friends, our lives start with hope and life and all of us in this room, they're gonna end in death. And if we're lucky, we'll get to spiral out of control before we die. We'll get to see that all roads are leading to death before we get to death. Because that's the real us. All roads lead to destruction. All roads lead to chaos. All roads lead to death, which is the rejection of life, which is the rejection of God, who is life. And Jesus knows that. Which is why when he's washing his disciples' feet, it is not a cute sign of service. No, no, no. He's saying, I'll take the dirt. I'll absorb the disease. I'll absorb the evil. I'll take the chaos. I'll take the destruction. I'll take the death so that you don't have to. All roads lead to the rejection of God. So God goes to that place first so you don't have to. On the cross, God is entering rejection of God. <laughs> I know this feels so abstract, but think about it. On the cross is the place of complete sin and the result of all that destruction and chaos will be death. God goes to the place of rejection of God. God goes to death and absorbs it because he's strong enough to do so, which is why he tells Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing yet, but you will. On the cross, bleeding out, entirely abandoned and alone, condemned by Jews, Romans, the heavenly creatures, condemned by you and by me. On the cross, God rejects himself so as to love you. And when Jesus is raised to life three days later, the disciples still entirely confused what's going on. 
This is the sign and the testimony that the strongest powers of the universe, the ones that lead to chaos, destruction, and death, they no longer have power over the universe anymore because God has entered that place, absorbed it, taken it all, and made something new out of it. So what is our response? And with this, I'm going to invite the band back up. Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. Unless you let me in to the real you. The you that's headed for the rejection of God. I cannot let you into the real me. The me that has already defeated the powers of evil and death. Friends, God rejects himself to love you. What's our response? We reject ourselves to love God back. In the earliest church, this text was used for baptism. And it makes sense why. Because in baptism, we say, Jesus, you can take our feet. You can take all the dirt You can take that moment of cowardice, which is the real me. You can take those unkind words I have said to my spouse because that's the real me, the the me I don't even want to love, the me I'm ashamed of. Jesus, take it because he's already there in that place. He's in the place of rejection of God, which is where it's leading to. Take it all, have all of me, and in return, give me you. Give me all of you. Give me communion with God, which I do not deserve, but which you offer freely because you're strong enough to do it. In baptism, we reveal that core voice of us, just like the play, that comes roaring out in a moment, cursing everyone for a drink, curse himself for a drink, rationalize it all away. That core voice, cursing for vindication, for self cursing God, enters into the tub, enters into the tank. And we say, have this voice, God, if you really want it. Have this voice. We reveal the voice that curses and rejects God, and we reveal it to God. And God says, give it to me. I'll take it because I love you so much. God rejects himself because he loves you. And the offer is we reject ourselves, which is to say we don't control our lives anymore. We recognize we are not in control so as to love God. We've been in this series of Groundswell for a bit now, and I know many of you have had encounters with God. I know it because you've told me. I know that God has prompted things on your heart I know that he has spoken himself. I know you've clearly got a a, a vision. Even if it was just for a moment, you got a vision of who he is, of how good Jesus is. And he's been saying through the whole thing, give it to me. Give me yourself. Give me all that you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want it all. And in return, I will give you unbroken and eternal intimacy with me, with God through me and in the power of my presence. 
we're going to have a baptism in a month. And I think as I say that, if your heart prompts, you should be baptized. It's time to let him have all of you, friends. It's time to give your full self, your dirty feet, not the good parts, but your real self, the dirty feet, to Jesus. Let him wash them. And in return, you get his presence and his intimacy. He's strong enough. So will you give it to him? There's a number. If you'll text your name and your email to this. Someone from our team, most likely me, I'll be in touch. I'd love to talk with you about what it would look like to be baptized coming up. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song of response and allow God to open up what your step is today. Jesus, your gospel is such good news, it's unlike anything else. Because you do not say we have to clean ourselves before coming to you. You say, actually, I've come to take the world's crap. I've come for that reason and no other. And so, Lord, I don't know who's in this room and what their experience of you has been over the last couple weeks and longer. But my prayer and what I ask them right now is if their heart is thumping, if their heart is saying this is true, even if they can't fully rationalize why, if they've encountered your love, God, would they take this step of faith? And so if that's you in this room right now, I would ask you to to even right now lift your hands, palms up, to say as a posture of saying, you can have all of me, God. You can have all of me, good, bad, and ugly. And your prayer would be, Jesus, I don't know what this means or what it's gonna look like, but I know I've seen enough to want to follow you and to learn what it is to love you because I know you've seen the real me. And for the rest of us, God, It's so easy in our culture to go through our days and not realize what dirt is at the core of us. Would you reveal it to us, not because you seek to condemn us, but because you seek to love us through that, to take it, to reveal the depths of the Father's love, which has taken our shame and in return given us your glory. So as we stand and sing, Jesus, would your presence speak deeply and minister deeply to hearts in this room, wherever they may be, and what they think about you. Amen. So would you stand now as one community and respond to the invitation of God wanting to wash your feet through this song. Hey, Hope Brooklyn. Darren here, your fellow Hope Brooklynite. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're part of the community, you're aware that we've been exploring the topic of generosity and stewardship. Each week, we offer a thought to reflect on as we prepare to enter 2020, relying completely on your generosity. So have a listen to what we discussed this last Sunday, and we'll see you around the table soon.
Good morning, Hope Brooklyn. Welcome to Sweater Weather. Isn't it nice? So glad to see so many of you this morning. My name is Darren. I am a part of the Hope community. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a season of dialogue about the topic of generosity. And I've shared some stories with you about my past and my trials and experiences uh, in this topic. And a recurring theme when I talk to people in the lunchroom is, is you know, it, it's this thing I feel also, which is I'm scared. I'm scared to give. I'm afraid. So the question is like, why do we keep on feeling this? Um, I think the real answer is that because giving comes from the heart. And when we are asked to give and walk in faith, it challenges our heart and makes us examine what are the little mini gods that are revolving around our heart that, that we rely on on a tactical basis so that we don't have to really walk in faith. And today we're going to explore a framework, and there actually is an exercise for all of you that we're going to do in two minutes that will help us think this through. Um, so why don't we go to the next slide? So there's this concept of an idol, which is a mini god that blocks us from our real god, and it's it can be we can identify it in four four ways, right? So for instance, if if I am in need of recognition, if I feel like you know I really need that next job, um, what will I do? I can use money uh, to get me there. I can I need to go to that nonprofit you know black tie gala so I can meet all the right people so I can network and get my next job and and really get to the next level. These things are all good things, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, when it grips you and changes your life and your life starts revolving around it, it becomes an idol. Next slide. Um, approval, right? Another example is, you know, I really want to be liked. I want people, my coworkers, my friends, my family to approve of what I'm doing. I don't want to feel the shame of what I really want to do. I have a really hard time saying no. These things are evidenced by possibly giving and spending lots of money on others to make them happy, or perhaps me saving very little. Next. One. Next. Comfort. Um, you know, we, we are in a society where, um, you know, if, if we don't feel good, it's, it's sometimes fun to go online and spend a lot of money, right, and buy some stuff. Load up the Amazon heart cart, hit, uh, hit buy. Um, perhaps this causes us to save very little. Or we're, when we're saving, we're actually saving for that ne next big purchase, that next big trip. And then finally, security or control. Um, the, the great thing is that money, it provides a lot of flexibility, right? If you have an exaggerated bank account, um, you, could, you could please a lot of people or get through a lot of hardships without relying on anyone else. So now what we're doing is we're going to take two minutes, and I'd like you to go and turn to someone next to you, introduce yourself, and actually have a discussion about what you think your idols are, okay? And we're going to divide up into one minute each. Um, an example is this. If we just go back... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the first confession. So when, at first, I wanted to be a doctor, okay, um, but then I realized I couldn't get through organic chemistry. Then I wanted to be a lawyer, but my LSAT score was too low. All right, then I decided, okay, forget it. I'm moving back to New York. I'm going to work in finance. At least I'll make a lot of money, right? Meanwhile, I had not confessed to my parents that I had become an English major focusing on creative writing because they would not approve, all right, because basically there's this unwritten narrative that, you know, we need to... We need to maintain this, right? This is very important because the money and the comfort and a certain standard of living are very, very important. So turn to someone now. I'm going to give you one minute, and I'll give you a time check at the one-minute mark to switch. Go. Okay, thank you, guys. How was that? The good news is that we have a lunch in the community today, so feel free to continue your conversations with your new friends at lunch.
To close things off today, we, sh we shared some statistics with you last week where there are 140 people and growing attending Hope Brooklyn every Sunday. That is a huge blessing. The, our next goal is to not only move out of our parents' basement, but also to stop relying on support from our denomination uh, starting January 1. And we need your partnership to do that. If you take a look at this draft, you can see the number of recurring donors and we need recurring donors. If this is your spiritual home, we encourage you to consider a recurring gift, direct debited from your bank account every month, because it helps us plan. It's very hard to plan when we're not sure if someone will give the next following month. It's hard to hire new people. It's hard to uh, provide new programs. Right now, as you can see, starting from January until now, we're at around, it started around 39 recurring donors. We're now at 35, as before this campaign started. So we have a goal, Cliff. Basically, our goal is to go from 35 recurring donors to 70 recurring donors at minimum, okay, before the end of the year. That is only half of our congregation, but it allows us the flexibility and it allows us the predictable, uh, the predictable income to un understand what we can spend money on and what we have to wait for. So, again, once again, if you um, are thinking about this, thank you. Uh, if you need prayer, if you want to talk to someone, feel free to reach out to any of us. Go to the prayer room, come to me, come to Russ. We thank you for your partnership and for generously considering giving not only your hearts, but your resources. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at LizVice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>